Chapter Six of the Lost Parchment by Fergus Hume. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six: Council's Opinion. When Hindle, having a weight on his mind, woke shortly after dawn, he remembered the vicar's proverb and thought that it might be true. Morning certainly was wiser than the night with him. As he began to ask himself why he should be so much disturbed over an unproven matter. Lee certainly asserted positively that he had found a hundred-year-old will made in favor of the elder branch of the Hindle family, and undoubtedly he spoke in a way which appeared to be genuine. But then, the vicar was a queer, eccentric person, who sometimes believed his visions to be facts and who had on occasion some difficulty in distinguishing between the real and the unreal. In a perfectly honest way, he might be making a mistake, and Rupert, turning over the matter before rising, hoped fervently that such might prove to be the case. On the other hand, unless Mr. Lee's statement had some foundation, in fact, it seemed improbable that he would even think of such a thing. There had never been any question as to the legitimacy of Hindle holding the property, and after a whole century had elapsed, it seemed strange that such an odd question should be raised. Assuredly, the vicar must have found something which had to do with the inheritance of the estates by the elder branch, else the fantastic idea would not have entered his rather wavering mind. But the will might not be good in law. It might have been signed and not witnessed, or there might have been some flaw in its drawing up which would nullify its provisions. If this was the case, Rupert was far too sensible to think of surrendering his lands and income to a man who, on the face of it, would make a bad use of the same. On the other hand, if the will was quite in order, the squire was honest enough to step down from his throne and allow the rightful king to take his seat thereon. Evil as might prove to be his rule, the whole question of right or wrong turned on the production of the will. Having reached this point in his meditations, Rupert arose and cleared his brain with a cold bath. It would be foolish to say that he was not worried, for he felt very much upset, as was natural, seeing there was a chance of his being reduced to the condition of a pauper. Mullen was not rich, but he had enough to live on, so the acquisition of more money would only result in his greater extravagance in the purchase of jewels. But if the will proved to be legal, Hindle foresaw that he, the squire of Barship, would be turned out of his pleasant home without a single penny and without any means of earning one. He had no profession, he had no trade, he was not over-clever, and Marlin, he was sure of this, would not allow him anything out of the estate. This was uncomfortable enough in itself for a young man who liked the good things of this life, but there was worse to follow. He would lose Dorinda, since her father would undoubtedly prevent the marriage with a pauper. The girl herself, as Rupert had said to the vicar, would remain true, but how could he ask her to become his wife, when he could not support himself, much less a helpmate? It was all very painful and very disagreeable, 
and Rupert descended to breakfast with a bad appetite. "'You don't look well at all, Mr. Hindle,' remarked Mrs. Beetson, when she came for orders after breakfast. "'Perhaps you are sickening for a fever.' "'Not at all,' replied her master, more crossly than he was accustomed to speak to this dismal woman. "'I have had a wakeful night, that's all.' ah well sir it's natural considering you are going to take such a serious step as marriage without thinking about it rupert allowed mrs beetson a certain amount of latitude but here she overstepped the mark he passed over her observation in silence and gave his orders for the day i shall have dinner at eight he remarked having arranged matters as i am going to town and will not be back until late "'Going to see the lawyers, I suppose, sir,' mentioned the housekeeper, with an odd look on her dreary face. Rupert looked up suddenly, wondering why she had made such a pertinent observation, for it was in his mind to do what she had suggested. "'Why do you suppose that, Mrs. Beetson?' "'Well, sir, it's only natural, as no doubt there are marriage settlements to be prepared, and all must be in order for the ceremony.' Mrs. Beetson said this glibly enough, and her reason appeared to be very plausible. Nevertheless, her glance was so significant that Hindle wondered if she had guessed his trouble. It seemed to be incredible since Lee had promised to hold his tongue until the matter was properly threshed out. Yet there was a certain malicious triumph lurking in the housekeeper's look, which hinted that she was rejoicing at his approaching downfall. After swift reflection, Rupert thought that he was mistaken, and was in a position of a man who sees a bird in every bush. He therefore ignored Mrs. Beetson's remark, and merely repeated that he would return late to dine. The woman hesitated for a moment, as if she wished to speak more plainly, then tossed her head and glided out in her ghostly way. Rupert frowned, for her behavior made him uncomfortable. Yet it was impossible that she should know anything of the thunderbolt which had struck him. And after all, as the squire reflected when he started to walk to the railway station, the thunderbolt had not yet reached its mark and might not reach it at all. Only an examination of the will would prove if he was a rich man or a pauper. And in his anxiety to learn this, Hindle called in at the vicarage as he passed the rickety gate. Strange to say, Mr. Lee proved to be absent, as he had gone to see a dying parishioner. It was only a short walk to the little wayside station, at which the London train stopped occasionally during the day. Rupert caught the ten o'clock train easily, and although it was very full, managed to secure a compartment to himself. Here, when the engine started, he gave himself up to meditation, not, as it may be guessed, of the most pleasant kind. Hindle, as Mrs. Beetson ignorantly or knowingly had suggested, really intended to consult lawyers. But before going to his family solicitors, he thought he would ask the opinion of counsel in the person of Carrington, as it struck him that there might be a statue of limitations in connection with long-lost wills. Even if there were... Rupert knew in his own heart that if Mullen proved to be the rightful owner of the property, he, 
the present owner, would never be able to take advantage of any law quibble. It all depended on the will, for if not produced, he would not be required, even by his own uneasy conscience, to surrender his house and income. He wondered if Lee had lost the will forever, in which case things could remain as they were. He wondered if there was a will at all, or if there was, whether the vicar might not have made a mistake. He wondered if the will were found, if it would be all shipshape, so as to deprive him of his kingdom. Indeed, Hendel wondered, in a more or less worried way, throughout the journey to town, and stepped out onto the platform of the Liverpool Street Station in anything but a happy frame of mind. Carrington had envied him his wealth and quiet existence. It was anything but quiet now, and the wealth, if the vicar proved to be correct, was about to take wings to itself and fly away into Marlin's gaping pockets. In a dismal frame of mind, Rupert took a taxi to Friars Inn. It was in this set of tall buildings that Carrington had his chambers for business purposes. Handel, said the barrister, when his visitor was ushered into the bare room, sparsely furnished and looking very businesslike. This is a surprise. How are you, old chap? Not up to much, from the look of you. I'm bothered out of my life replied Hendel, taking the cane chair, a most uncomfortable one, which was pointed out to him. Oh, I think there is sufficient life left in you to stand a trifle more strain, was Carrington's flippant observation, as he resumed his seat at a very businesslike desk. I can't guess in any way what can bother you. No one but the wearer knows where the shoe pinches, quoted Hendel grimly. Quite so, and no one ever will know unless the wearer explains the bad fit, my friend. Bothered? You? With beeves and lands and money and the promise of a beautiful and desirable damsel to be your wife? That's just it, said the visitor, seizing the opening. I may lose all these things, Carrington. The barrister wheeled his chair round to stare, and his keen dark face was alive with curiosity. Have you been out running the constable? he asked. Has the lady changed her mind? Has... You are wide of the mark. To put the matter in a nutshell, it's a will. A will? What about it? This much, it exists and may disinherit me. The deuce! In whose favor? In favor of Julius Mullen, my cousin. Then he will have his rights, if he has a leg to stand on, said Carrington grimly. Mullen struck me as a man who would go through fire and water for himself. Why did your father make a will in his favor? He did not. The will was made one hundred years ago by John Hendel, from whom Mullen and I are descended. One hundred years ago? echoed the barrister, puzzled. Then how comes it you have to do with it now? Lee found it in the monument room. Confound his zeal, but still I don't quite understand. Perhaps you will tell me the whole story from the beginning. I suppose you have come to ask my advice as a friend? Yes, and as a barrister. My best forensic lore is at your disposal. 
Well, Hendel at once began his explanation, and as he proceeded became much too restless to remain seated. Midway in the recital he started to his feet and began to pace the narrow limits of the office, shading his eyes with his hand and drawing figures on the blotting paper. Carrington listened to the rather amazing story of Lee's discovery, and when in possession of the facts looked rather skeptical. I understand that you have not seen the will? No, Lee, as is natural with so untidy a man, has mislaid it. Then how do you know the will exists? Lee says so. Hm. Carrington threw down his pencil and leaned back with a doubtful look. I think the vicar's wits must be wool-gathering. He has no enmity against you, I suppose. Enmity? Hendel stopped in his walk and stared. I mean he is your friend? Oh, yes, Lee and I are great friends. And his attitude toward Mullen? He doesn't like him overmuch. Mullen is so rude to him. And to everyone, finished Carrington with a shrug. A most disagreeable person. Well, as Lee likes you and doesn't like your cousin, I take it he could not have invented this story to do you out of the property in Mullen's favor. No, Lee is the best of good fellows, though rather eccentric. He must have found the will. It is impossible that he could have suggested its existence otherwise. I suppose not, murmured Carrington vaguely, then glanced shrewdly at his client. Does he know your family history? Everyone in Barship knows that, replied Hendel, dropping again into his chair with a sigh. There is nothing to know, really, as we have always been a dull, homely lot of people. Tell me how your descent runs from John Hendel. In the direct male line, Frederick the son, Henry the grandson, Charles the great-grandson, and myself the great-great-grandson. And Marlin's descent? He comes in the female line from Walter, the eldest son of John Hendel. Eunice, the daughter of Walter, and the granddaughter of John, married George Filbert. Mrs. Filbert had a daughter, Anne, who married Frank Mullen, and her son is Julius, my cousin, who has, as you know, a daughter. Dorinda, to whom you are engaged, commented Carrington. That marriage will bring the elder and the younger branches of the family together. A very good arrangement. Will Julius marry again? I don't think so. He hates women. I should think every single member of the sex returned the compliment. But what I mean is that when you marry Miss Mullen, the money will come to you and her when her father dies. It should, as we two represent the elder and younger branches of the family, joined, as you observed. But Mullen is quite capable of leaving the money elsewhere out of devilment. He tolerates me because I lend him money, and he has very little affection for Dorinda. We are to marry next month because I have promised Mullen five hundred a year when I make Dorinda my wife, and he is now in a hurry for the money. But, added Rupert anxiously, if he knew that he was the rightful heir, he would forbid the marriage. It is probable he would, since he has such a sweet nature said Carrington dryly, but would Miss Mullen obey him? 
no she loves me too well for that but of course if i lose the property i am reduced to pauperism pure and simple and could scarcely ask the girl to share my nothing the barrister nodded sympathetically it's a beastly position he said after a pause especially as you haven't been brought up to earn your own living in any way but of course we are building on sand nobody but this weird parson has seen the will so it may not exist i don't see why lee should think of such a thing if the will does not exist said rupert impatiently true enough well let us grant the will does exist and leaves the property to eunice filbert from whom mullen traces his descent still possession is nine points of the law and your lot has held the property for close upon one hundred years there is a statue of limitations oh rupert looked up eagerly i had an idea that there might be then if i take your meaning correctly since this will has only been found after so long a period the statue operates against its being legal well it might operate or it might not it all depends upon the circumstances of the case mostly the statue of limitations would operate the will was never filed in the probate court i take it no until lee found it i expect no one but its maker and his witnesses knew of its existence and they are all dead ages ago but i thought wills were filed at somerset house now they are but in eighteen fifteen they were filed at the probate court at canterbury well said hindle restlessly the question is what am i to do well obviously the first thing is to get possession of the will and in that way learn exactly how things stand with regard to mullen john hendel may not have cut off his second son frederick entirely he may not assented rupert dubiously on the other hand he may lee certainly gave me to understand that everything had been left to eunice who afterward married filbert if such is the case you may be sure that mullen will take everything and will decline to give me a penny just like him but the statue of limitations i shall not take advantage of that interrupted hindle firmly if the will does make mullen the heir by descent he shall have the property but my dear man cried the barrister starting to his feet that is quixotic why leave yourself without a penny especially when mullen is such an unamiable person it's hard i grant replied rupert ruefully yet as an honest man what else can i do it seems to me that there is a limit to honesty said carrington tartly i scarcely think that i could act so quixotically if i had to do with the matter however we can discuss this point when the will is in your possession and we can make sure that what lee says is true when do you hope to get it well i don't know lee said that he had mislaid it and would search for it so i have called this morning on the chance that he might have found it he was absent attending to a dying woman and of course i couldn't interrupt him at his business i left a message that i would call again when i returned this evening when do you return by the seven o'clock train i shall arrive in time for dinner i told mrs beetson that i would dine at eight 
If Lee finds the will, I presume he will bring it to you this evening at the big house. He might, and he might not. In any case, I shall call. Carrington considered the remark for a few moments and stared out the window at the chimney pots. I don't think that I would call if I were you, Hendel, he said at length. Why not? Because this case needs a more careful handling than you are able to give it, my friend. Leave Lee alone until tomorrow, and I'll come down sometime about midday to interview the vicar along with you. It's very good of you, Carrington, said the perplexed squire gratefully. I don't expect one night will make any difference, as I shall be certain of the bad news soon enough. I'll wait until you can go with me tomorrow to the vicarage. Perhaps by then Lee will have found the will. I don't leave the vicarage until he has found it, said Carrington grimly. It's too important a document to be left in the hands of a shiftless creature such as Lee. He is quite capable of taking it to Marlin, if it is in favor of Marlin's grandmother, as he asserts. Hendel, standing up to go away, shook his head. I don't think he will go past me, he remarked slowly. In the first place, he dislikes Mullen because Mullen's brusque manners, and in the second, Mullen refused, out of his present income, to help him to fit out an expedition to Yucatan. Central America? Why does the vicar want to go there? Oh, he's been reading some diary of Mullen's father describing certain researches among buried cities in those wilds and wants to go there and look up things for himself. I dare say if you finance this expedition, Lee will say nothing about the will. That is, if he has already said nothing to anyone, said Carrington. He told me that he had not. Save you and I, no one knows about Lee's discovery. It's just as well that Mullen doesn't know, ended Rupert with a shrug, or he would tear down the vicarage or rob it to get the testament which would make him a rich man. Well, I don't think a weak old buffer like Lee could put up much fight, Handel. Well, my advice is for you to hold your tongue and refrain from seeing Lee until tomorrow afternoon. Then we can tackle him together. Buck up and face the music, old chap, added the barrister, clapping his friend on the back. After all, the thing may prove to be a false alarm. I don't place much reliance on that dreaming parson. Nor do I, answered Rupert, as he took his leave, but in this case I fancy there must be a fire to account for the smoke. Lee could not have invented a will which does not exist. Well then, good-bye. I shall see you to-morrow. At one o'clock or thereabouts. Anyhow, before two. Meanwhile, don't see anyone, and particularly not Miss Mullen. She is sure to spot your dismals and if she begins to question, you may give yourself away. Rupert halted on the threshold, hesitating for a while, but finally promised not to see Dorinda. Then, as there was nothing else to be done, he went to a matinee of a successful play to distract his mind and returned as he had arranged in time for his eight o'clock dinner. After the meal, he spent a very dull evening, reading the newspapers and playing patience. But for his promise to Carrington, he would have walked to the cottage to see Dorinda, and he sorely felt the want of her society at this crisis. 
however he saw the wisdom of the barrister's advice not to acquaint her with the trouble until more was ascertained for certain lest by arousing Mullen's suspicions that gentleman might learn too much and Mullen was very quick as a rule to guess that something was being kept from him so rupert possessed his soul in patience and retired to bed early after a somewhat restless night he descended to breakfast to find that ill news travels fast it was mrs beetson who conveyed this especial information and she did so with delight always anxious to pass on any news of any disaster oh mr handel she cried bursting into the breakfast room without knocking such a terrible thing has happened mr lee is dead mr lee has been murdered End of chapter six